So in all our Christian creativity, and I'm talking about the the touchy-feely stuff that we engage with in the church, church architecture and ornaments and furniture and liturgy and music and art, one of the most consistently underrepresented aspects of the Christian faith is what happens to us when we die. This building that we're in right now is cruciform, not tombiform. Most churches have a cross at the front of the building. Very few have an empty grave. This is weird. When you consider that the gospel is not just that Christ died for your sins, but that he also rose from the dead, and therefore, if you believe and trust in him as Lord, so can you. So this week, I've been wondering why. Why is it that the corpus of creative Christian things is a little bit light on our resurrection? Three possibilities. One, for most of our lives, we have more pressing things to be concerned about than our death. And so the immediate, albeit trivial, drowns out the ultimate, albeit vital. Second possibility, many scientists believe the issue is not just environmental, I'm too busy right now to think about death, but psychological. The hyperbolic discounting effect is the idea that risks far away concern us less than ones right here that we're dealing with in the moment. This explains, for example, why government health warnings on packs of cigarettes don't work. Uh, Or if a wolf came into this building right now, you would would have a physical change. Your your heart rate would go up. Your blood pressure would go up. Your adrenaline would go up. You'd be ready to do something. But if I tell you right now there is a possibility a wolf might come into this building in about 10 years' time, no impact at all. No one's worried. The thing is, death is not a task to be busy with or a risk to calculate. It's a certainty. Verse 22, for as in Adam, all die. The scholar Leon Morris says, we're involved with Adam in a solidarity of guilt. A wonderful way of putting it, I think. In other words, we sin just like he did. If it was you in the garden, you would have done what he did because you're human. And so like him, in him, we die. Now, this raises a third possibility. Perhaps the reason so little of our creative attention has been directed to the question, what happens to us when we die, is because we kind of feel there's not much we can do about it anyway. Think about the English word fatality. There was a fatality on the road today, a fatal accident. That includes both the idea of death itself and the inevitable nature of it, fate. I wonder if we're resigned to death. And I wonder if the long, slow, painful decline in our bodies as we walk towards death, get more tired, take longer to heal, wake up on your 45th birthday with a crick in your neck because you slept. I wonder if this slowing down and fading of the flesh means that We just can't imagine a flesh that never fails. It's difficult for us to imagine a a, a life with a body that can't be hurt. So what we hope for is something more spiritual instead. We hope for something a little bit away from the body, perhaps. 
Three recent studies found that 90% of Americans believe in an afterlife of some sort, but only half believe in heaven. When it comes to Christians, so we've really narrowed the, the pool now of people that we're surveying. When it comes to Christians, only a third believe in a bodily resurrection of the dead into a new physical world. Most Christians do not believe they will resurrect. If you believe that you will rise from the dead, you are in a minority, not just of Americans, but of Christians. In spite of the fact that every single week we stand up and say these words, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. What do you think it means? I do not believe the issue is environmental. I'm too busy. Or psychological. It's too far away. I believe the problem is theological. We don't know what we believe. The reason so little of our collective Christian thought and our creative Christian thought has been directed to the resurrection and our life yet to come is because we simply don't believe in it. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at what happens to us when we don't believe in our own resurrection. And then very briefly, we'll just recap the basics of what it is we are called to believe. So what happens if you don't believe in the resurrection of believers? Well, if you don't believe in a resurrection body, that your body will physically rise from the grave into a perfected state and into a perfected world that is at least as physical as this one, if not more so, then our bodies become a little bit of a problem. What are we going to do with them? If we're just going to heaven and that's all we're doing, just going to a sort of spiritual state whereby we are in the presence of God, and that's the end, what are we going to do with our bodies? If the essence of who we are is purely spiritual, and we're headed to something purely spiritual, away from the flesh, and instead of Scripture, we take our doctrine from Plato and Walt Disney, as we saw at Easter in the tale of two blenders, classically you've got two options. So option number one, I don't have them with me today, I'm afraid. But uh, option number one, work really hard to make your body become more spiritual. Somehow transcend your body or mortify your body. Whip your body into spiritual shape to conform the flesh into a more spiritual shape until at last your body atones for itself or behaves itself. And you can die and you can escape your body before it drags down your soul with it. Option number two, give up, have some fun while it lasts. Smoke if you got them. Ignore the warnings. If you're going to leave your body behind and the real you is just a soul or a spirit of some kind trapped inside of a body, then you might as well indulge your body, commodify your body, trash your body, do it until you're free. In fact, the more you do that, the Corinthians reasoned, the more you demonstrate how spiritual you are. Look what I can do with my body. The real me is a spirit. We illustrated this at Easter horribly by blending a McDonald's Happy Meal in one blender and a Gwyneth Paltrow-style unhappy meal in the other, and we drank them both, didn't we? It was rather nasty, I can attest. One of those blenders took a few years off my life. The other one made me wish it had. Uh, 
By the way, we spilled a little bit, I say we, uh, spilled a little bit on the carpet right here. It started to dissolve the floor. (laughs) I do not commend it. Now, the very same dichotomy occurs in verse 32. This is not a surprise because it's the same author in the same letter and he's making a point. So it's not a surprise. But he says in verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, imagine in the flesh, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. His work in Asia, his work for the Ephesian church, might have brought him into contact with literal wolves on the road. More likely metaphorical ones. Brought him into conflict with enemies of the gospel of God, people who were out for his blood, people who wanted physically to cause him harm. In 2 Corinthians, he writes this. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." In the book of Daniel, savage beasts are representative of the evil empires of this world and the demonic forces behind them. Paul fought with his life against sin, the world, and the devil until his body broke. What is the point in all of that physical work if he could have just sat in his room, had a cup of tea, had a quiet time, and prayed instead. Likewise, Christ, why incarnate? Why take on flesh? Why die such a painful death if he could have just sent us an email? A TikTok, I don't know, Snapchat. Why bother with the incarnation? You see how close we are to blasphemy when we deny the resurrection? What is God doing? incarnating if there's no resurrection. You see the other option here, also verse 32. The happy meal blender. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You're going to wonder if you drink a Big Mac and fries, I can tell you now. Do some spiritual stuff in your head, maybe in the woods, go for a walk, say om. But as for your body, do with it what you like. It's just a body. In response to both blenders... Paul says in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't hang around too much with people who advocate for either option. Don't fill your life with non-resurrectionists of either kind, not even the quote-unquote Christian ones, because they will lead you astray. People who do not believe in the resurrection of the body will burden you with works or have you indulge yourself until you drag yourself into the pit. Verse 34, wake up. Come to your senses. And if you don't wake up now and engage with the truth of the gospel now, you will engage with it eventually. I've probably taken about 100 funerals. In England, where I used to minister by law, A minister, an Anglican minister, has to take the funeral of anyone in their town that wants a funeral, regardless of what they believed. It's uh, part of living in a communist country. And so, uh, increasingly so. 
This means that every three weeks, I met a complete stranger on the worst day of their life. And who, with me in the room, sitting on the sofa, would start to concoct a thesis right there, live in the room, in the middle of their grief, to try and explain what had happened to themselves and to try and capture for themselves a little bit of hope. I've heard people say to me, I saw a rainbow this morning. That was him. That's probably the most common thing I've heard. Uh, There was a, a bird outside. Maybe that was him. Uh, She's an angel now. She's a star. That's the second most common idea. Uh, The leaves are coming out. I think she might be a tree. Weather patterns. Bits of wood. Explosions in space. Just ephemera. If people become leaves, what happens if you die in the fall? We've had a cardinal banging its face on the rectory windows for 18 months. Bits of brain are actually stuck to the glass. There's a sort of patina of hemorrhagic pulp smeared over every window in the building. It's like a red version of Slimer from Ghostbusters. (laughs) Fifty times during the redraft of this sermon this morning over coffee, it smacked into the window next to me. It's a moron. It's getting stupider with every bit of brain that comes out. Paul got beaten and chained and shipwrecked. I drank a Big Mac. We are not doing this to persuade you that if you get things just right, hopefully, fingers crossed, you too can live in the cold, eat worms and smash your face into a window 50 times a day. Glimpsing the happy faces of your grandchildren as they eat a meal in the house and play Xbox as your eyeball glides down the glass. That's not hope. It's a vision of hell. Just like us today, the Corinthian church was panicked by death, shocked by it, unprepared for it, confused, confounded, outraged. It was coming up with ideas on the hoof, like a drowning man just grabbing at anything they could find to try and give themselves a sort of glimmer of hope. In verse 29, we read that people were even being baptized on behalf of the dead. It's such a weird idea that the scholars don't even know what it means. We don't know what they were thinking. Was it maybe to save the one who was dead? Like you were doing it for them? Like, uh, you know, I'm going to, Granny wasn't done, and so I'm going to get done on her behalf. Like, was it um, like paying the bill for someone after a meal? Um, was, it, was it somehow the idea that, I don't know, the font was like a Ouija board and you could commune with the dead in the water or something? We don't know. We don't know. We're just making it up. Uh, there are examples very much like this a hundred years later where there was a cult of vicarious baptism, but no evidence for it at this early stage. The medieval church took this sort of idea and really ran with it, actually. They asked for money on behalf of the dead. The church posited the thesis that somehow the dead went to a holding place of some kind. And they said, if you pay us, we can save them for you. And I can understand why people paid. They were desperate. They were really hurt. Grief is profound. Many of us know what grief feels like. If you've lost a pet, you know what it feels like when they're not there to greet you in the morning or 
climb into the bed at night. Uh, sometimes it's a parent that we've lost. Uh, or, or a lifelong spouse. All those places you went together, the things you did. Maybe a child untimely lost. When these griefs occur, it leaves a, a place at the table that's empty. It leaves a hole in the heart. Smells. Sounds. Things you can touch. The touchy-feely stuff. The, the creative stuff often brings those memories flooding back, brings the grief right back. You might be three, four, five, ten years out from grief, and suddenly one little thing, and you're back there as though it were day one of your grief cycle all over again. It comes flooding back. In moments like this, of profound grief, what do people do when they're unprepared? Where do they go to find out what to believe, what to think, what to do, what to say? do you think? The internet, of course. And the way that algorithms work, the more that people click a thing, the more the thing thinks that you want to see the thing. So the more people see it, it potentiates. The most common words I'm asked to read at a funeral are presented as a poem. Now, it's actually not a poem. It's an extract from a sermon in which the preacher said, this kind of thing is not true. But Google zoomed in on the bit that's not true and presented it as the truth. And so, taking out of context, this is the paragraph I'm asked to read. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I've only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. And people ask me for this poem all the time because they're looking for comfort. I will not read it. It's false. Very carefully, when they present this poem to me, I ask them, so are you not bereaved then? I say, of course we are. I say, are you not sad? They go, of course we're sad. I say, do you not miss them? I say, then you don't believe that death is nothing at all, do you? You know more than anyone else in the world right now how death is everything, how it completely ruins everything. Then I share with them not a denial of death, but the redemption of it, the central Christian hope. Here's what actually happens for those in Christ. We'll run through it quickly, verses 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Asleep uh, being a polite way of saying dead, but also, I think, an allusion to the idea that it really is not as final as we might think. The first fruits was the first sample of a crop. Uh, tasting the first fruits was something a farmer would do. And by tasting the first fruit, he could verify what the rest of the whole harvest would be like. Just as Christ was raised from the grave, so also will those who belong to him. And exactly like him, the rest of the crop will be just like him, part of the same crop. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, a real man. Just as Adam killed you, Christ will raise you. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, our default state and default destiny is in Adam in death. So in Christ shall all be made alive. Our potential state and potential destiny is in Christ in life. 
Here's the order, verse 23. Christ, the first fruits, that first taste of the crop. Then at his coming, meaning his return physically, he physically was born, he physically died, he was physically buried, he physically rose from the grave, he physically ascended to the right hand of his Father, and physically he will return in the same manner. Those who belong to Christ. If you are a Christian, you will be raised exactly like him when he returns. Verse 24, then comes the end. See that death is not the end? The end is when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, the kingdom which he has obtained by divine right and conquest on the battlefield. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, all evil, all decay, all demonic forces, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then what? An end that does not end. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. The Father has put everything under Christ's feet. And those feet, by the way, are made of Feet, the real, resurrected feet. They're more real than our feet right now because they're perfect. And then the kicker, that God may be all in all. Christ's purpose in dying and rising again was to atone and to adopt and to present us in himself, to the Father, ready to resurrect. Those who've died in Christ are in the presence of God right now in some spiritual sense, but that is not the end point. The end point is that we might rise like him and have feet made of feet. And then we'll use them to walk around in a perfected world with the Father himself in the cool of the day, without pain, where physical and spiritual are perfectly fused with the grace and the power and the glory and the presence of God, and death is no more. That is our hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for your incarnation, death and resurrection and return. And thank you thereby that you have purchased for us a resurrection also, that we might rise and live in a perfect recreated world with perfect feet. Lord, thank you that in our frailty, what awaits for us is not a decline, but a rising again. In our grief, Lord, thank you that we shall be reunited in Christ with those whom you love. And thank you, God, for that lively hope 